0: All right, we're good? All right, why don't we uh, get seated? Good morning, everyone. All right, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 3. And uh, as you get seated, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll have the verses up on the screen. But you can feel free to open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 3. Lord, thanks for this morning and this opportunity to uh, be together. God, we uh, are reminded in our worship this morning that all of us desperately need you um, to live this life effectively, fruitfully. Lord, it's so easy to think that we can live apart from you. We've been tempted to believe that from the beginning of our creation as a race. Um, Believing that we can figure out and control life and live independently of you. It's been whispered into every human ear, and all of us in this room are tempted each day to believe that's true. To believe that we don't need you as our authority, as our king, as the one who loves us, but to believe we can find those things anywhere else. Lord, this morning would you remind us of our need for you, our need for one another, and that we were not designed to live independent lives of self-autonomy, but we were designed to live in community under your good rule. Lord, humble us, teach us your ways, that we would not be rebellious children, but we would willingly and joyfully give ourselves to you. Thank you for your word this morning. I pray you would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So Daniel 3 is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, what I've done is I've broken it up into some sections that I'm going to read. Feel free l- later today to read the whole thing yourself, but um, we're going to really get at the highlights of, uh, of the chapter. But like I said, we're continuing our series. Sam did Daniel 1, Bjorn did Daniel 2, and, and now I'm going to be uh, teaching us Daniel 3, which is essentially the, the story of uh, the, the fiery furnace. Um, and so I uh, look forward to getting into that with you. So we'll have the verses on the, the screen. Feel free to stand. And I'll read through that, and then we'll unpack it together. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come up to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar that King King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And now we're skipping down to verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Skipping down to 24 through 25. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, So a little refresher on Daniel. Uh, People of Israel have been taken in exile due to their sin and their selfishness as a people into Babylon, into King Nebuchadnezzar at the time, one of the most powerful kingdoms and kings in the the ancient area. Um, They were living in a foreign land amongst a foreign people. And at times it went okay. Uh, They were allowed to worship as they pleased and and kind of live as Jews, even though they were in the midst of Babylon. Babylon. Um, but in this story, some of that uh, begins to change and the structures and the power structures in that society began to want to essentially centralize power and control. And one of the ways they did that was uh, setting up this large, golden statue, 90 feet high, which I think is even taller than the mill building here to, to think about this, the magnitude of this uh, structure. Uh, it was having, it was hearkening back to the Tower of Babel. Uh, the language that this is using is particularly its emphasis on it being set up in the plains. Is, there's this imagery back to the Tower of Babel, uh, what the people did at that point as well, kind of showing us there's nothing new under the sun uh, with humanity. We all tend to gravitate toward the same dysfunction. So all of a sudden, it becomes challenging to live as a Jew, obviously, in this land. Uh, I think sometimes we hear a story like, like the, the, the fiery furnace, and um, we hear it so often, at least I have, that it becomes sort of rote. It becomes just kind of normal. We read it to our kids, and they have the kids' stories about it, and, and uh, it, it becomes kind of something we're used to. But as I was preparing this this week, I thought, this is a, this is a significant punishment. I mean, can you imagine if this was an edict that we had as a people, that if we refused to worship in a certain way, I mean, dying of a fire is a pretty horrible way to die. Um, And so the the pressure they were under was significant uh, not to bow to this image And as it's interesting, as you read the story, what you quickly start to see, and if you go home and read chapter three yourself today, uh, the interesting thing about it is what you start to realize as you read it is King Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't as interested in this particular golden image. Uh, Historians don't really think it was necessarily symbolic of a god even. Uh, It didn't represent some deity that was known that he was asking them to worship as if he was saying, I want you to worship this particular god by bowing to this particular statue. Uh, More, it was kind of a unique structure, uh, which really shows that what Nebuchadnezzar was after was essentially worship of himself. In fact, what he gets so mad about that these three didn't bow What he's so angry about is they didn't obey him. They didn't obey his command. And that sets him into a rage where he sets this furnace seven times hotter than it was. And so, before we kind of tune out, I know sometimes when we're talking about ancient history, like golden images and fiery furnaces, um, you know, I think we can easily tune out as people living in 2024 in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Um, the only fiery furnace we know of is La Festa, and I don't think we feel like that's gonna connect to our lives necessarily. Um, but before you tune out, I think we also need to recognize that these same principles hold true, and we're gonna unpack that more in this sermon, but, but this idea, and we've been looking at it through the whole series is, in New England where we live now, in our time and place, the reality is We also have unique pressures as Christians, following the one true God, following Jesus Christ. Uh, We we have unique pressures, even that people in this time weren't facing, uh, that we have to face day in and day out. Whether it's in our families, in our workplaces, in our jobs, amongst friends, amongst neighbors. Um, There are cultural pressures that make it challenging uh, to follow Jesus, and there are things that God asks us to take a stand on as the church that make us unpopular, uh, that make us controversial, that make us seem unloving. Um, and I just so appreciate the courage of these three men, as we read earlier in the second section, where they respectfully say they weren't being na- notice they weren 't being nasty to King Nebuchadnezzar, they weren 't saying, You punk, we're not going to obey you. Who do you think you are? They're saying your majesty. There's a sign of respect. There's a sign of care. Um, We're not going to obey you. Uh, we, We can't bow down to you. You're a man. We only bow down to Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's the only one we bow down to. But the way they do it has such respect and care that it's incredibly winsome, even though the message is unpopular still. They can't get away from the fact that that not following that is going to make them look like they're an enemy. One thing we see throughout the whole book of Daniel is there's this major theme, and it shows up, especially in chapter 2 that Bjorn preached on. The major theme of Daniel is basically that that all earthly kingdoms and cultures and ways of life and belief systems, uh, they're all in those sovereign individual systems are all going to eventually come to an end, and God's kingdom is going to replace all earthly kingdoms, past, present, future, with one kingdom of God, where he himself is king forever. Uh, That's something that continues to be a theme throughout the whole book of Daniel, and so the obvious conclusion that Daniel is trying to make is, if that's the truth, if that's where we're going, that even this culture we're in now is going to pass away, The culture that we're facing now, the the New England whole reality, the air we breathe here, it's not eternal. It's not going to last forever. But what will last forever is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so the wisdom is to say, follow him, not what's around you, even if it's unpopular. It's a beautiful image. Our hope is in a kingdom yet to fully come. But, But it's happening so soon. I think that's the thing we see in Daniel. Our time here is so short. So as I thought about this, I thought, (coughs) okay, to help everyone not fall asleep, (coughs) let's start bringing it home a little bit. And (coughs) what what would be our equivalent? I think you can't really make full equivalents, but but what would be some similarities with this culture in Babylon to ours (coughs) and where we are now? (coughs) <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> it's awful with a microphone to do that. Um, are there any sort of golden statues, quote, quote, in our culture that as Christians, um, we feel a, a pressure or attention uh, to have to kind of submit to or agree with or obey or, or live under um, that is, is really not, <coughs> thank you, thank <laughs> you. I've never been a water guy when I preach sermons, but, you know, I kind of find it annoying. But now I have to do it today, so I'm sorry. Um, Are are there similarities we can draw in terms of what these three were under and what our culture uh, has set up? And I, I think, because I think one of the themes of Scripture is that humanity doesn't necessarily change in terms of the things that it, it heart, its heart desires, um, that it, it, it wants to promote, it wants to live for, that humanity, although cultures change and, and nations change and time changes, that the human heart is bent a certain way. And so I think you always can assume that things you find in the Old Testament, they're going to have relevance to us today. It's just a question of what is it? And what does it look like? It's going to look different because, for instance, in our culture, we don't have a system where one person could build uncontested a huge golden statue in the middle of Dover, and no one would even have any contesting of it in our culture. Like, there would be fighting. There would be issues, right? And I think, as I've thought it through, I think there are several. So I, I won't be able to unpack everything that I think our culture has kind of set up that, that makes it hard for Christians to live under and we have to figure out as a church how do we how do we live under this reality. So you know, I'm sure you guys have other ones that, that you're thinking of too. But the one that really jumped out at me that I run into a lot in my own life is the idea of of individualism. In fact, uh, I was just with some people from the Midwest yesterday, and they relocated to New England. And they were making the comment that everyone outside of New England uh, views us with the perception that it's all about individualism here. And you're expected to essentially be self-sufficient and completely independent while you live in this area. And if you're from other parts of the country, you may not be welcome. That's the perception they had, and they've kind of felt that at different times compared to the culture that they grew up in, in Iowa and in, uh, I think it was Michigan. And that's not the first time I've heard that. Has anyone ever heard that? Or am I talking to people who, has anyone relocated from the Midwest or the South and kind of feels that? Oh, okay, we got some agreement in the house, that's good. It's always good to make to kind of be on point with people you're talking to. Um, yeah, so I, I do think in the West it's a problem in general, but I think in New England, just like there's a huge stereotype in Western Europe of a similar thing, not so much in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe and New England and the West Coast, there seems to be this heightened sense of individualism. And I think for Christians in every level of society in New England, uh, this does present unique problems for us as the church. And I think it makes us look quite a bit different actually from the culture around us. Maybe not as as extreme as what we read in Daniel three, where they looked so different because they weren't bowing to this golden image. But I think there are a lot of similarities in terms of our views of what individualism is at its heart. Does run con- God's word does run contrary to a lot of what we are taught about individualism in our cultural context. And the more we recognize that and kind of talk about that with people, the more we're seen as incredibly bizarre, even hurtful, with our perspective on this whole idea of, of individualism. So let's get a little bit deeper into it, because what are some of the, the components of this individualism that we see throughout our, our, our culture, whether it's businesses, or schools, or universities, or the media? There, there's idea right now in our culture that the individual is is fundamentally, is, is fundamentally good. So in terms of who they are internally, their soul, um, it, is, it is fundamentally light, it is fundamentally good and the problem has been social constructs from the outside coming in and damaging the inside that need to be removed through means like education or different types of, um, different types of approaches. So the problem is all on the outside. that that over time can affect the inside. And that's not to say that I disagree that there are problems on the outside. Because the reality is sin doesn't just affect our individual heart. Sin absolutely affects constructs and institutions and things outside. I think there's a million examples of that. Just look at the news. Um, So so, so there, there is absolutely an outside reality that's broken that affects us as people. All of us have stories of that, myself included. Even churches have issues. I don't know if you guys knew that. But to completely disregard the internal brokenness is what we're dealing with as a culture. That the individual is fundamentally good, and if you you disagree with that, you are a person who is going to bring bad to other people. You're going to hurt them. So this is one idea. The individual is fundamentally good is something I think we are pressured without even realizing it into agreeing with as Christians. The other one is that the the individual is fundamentally in control of their destiny and can do whatever they want in a sense that they are are sovereign over their life. And, And to get in the way of that, is a mistake. Um, I think that Christians are pressured, the church is pressured to figure out what to do with that. What do you do with the fact that this idea of the individual is that they are fully in control of their future and their destiny? I think that presents an issue for Christians in the church. How do we navigate that? Another component um, is that the individual is the determiner of right and wrong. And so each individual has the authority uh, to determine for themselves what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Um, and, and if you don't see it that way, then you're, 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 not, you're not in line with what's true. And so I think for Christians, that's another area that we feel pressure. How do we, how do we come alongside someone who thinks they have the right to control right and wrong? There's no outside uh, authority. Uh, universal authority that would determine that. It, it creates problems. I think other areas of individualism is that we are uh, permitted to express ourselves in, in any way we see fit in all areas of our life. So self-expression in all kinds of areas, uh, putting any sort of boundaries on that is seen as a problem. And so again, this idea of self-expression in all kinds of areas of life, for a Christian, is, is I think it's tricky. It's challenging uh, to navigate that. There's some pressure around that. Now, I think, I think where this starts to go, because um, here's the thing, I'm, I'm tempted to live this way myself. I don't know if you guys ever feel a pressure to live this way. Does anyone feel a pressure to live in some of the constructs I just described? Trevor does, thank you Trevor. Um, I'll just speak for myself and Trevor. I feel pressure in every arena I just described to live that way, even as a Christian. And I think part of it is it's because the air I breathe living where I do. That's my point. But what is the problem with that? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. One, what I find in my life is when I try to live that way, and I'm tempted to live that way, and I I function that way. Like I look at my day, I'm thinking, wow really lived the way I just described, I I just kind of cave in on myself. I become incredibly self-focused, I become completely uncaring about vulnerable people around me who I could actually tangibly help but I'm not interested because I'm too busy trying to self-actualize, maximize my own joy, maximize my own comfort, maximize my own ease. Uh, My heart for other people starts to grow incredibly cold. I become someone I myself don't want to be around. That's a problem. When you're like, I'm becoming someone I don't want to be around. Just think of how other people are starting to feel around you. The other problem with this is as I've talked through these categories, I think what you start to see is I'm actually being tempted to think I'm sovereign and that I am, in, in a sense, I am like God. So it's not just a selfishness problem, although I totally struggle with that when I'm tempted to live this way, but it's also a problem of I'm starting to see myself, in a sense, as God himself. And that's an equally huge problem. But what's interesting as we think about that reality is I I couldn't help but think of Genesis with that particular problem that we as humans face. And so you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to quickly read it. Uh, Genesis 3, and this is the uh, the beginning of the fall of humanity. Uh, Listen listen to what the the enemy says to Eve. It's really fascinating when we think about what our culture is telling us about individualism right now. He says to her, as she's kind of going back and forth with him about this tree, he says, You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. So she's saying, Hey, if I eat this, I'm going to die. And he's saying to her, You're not going to die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And get this, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So he's saying, God knows that if you eat this, if you buy into this temptation, that you're gonna become like him. You're gonna become sovereign. You're gonna know and determine good and evil. Can anyone relate to what's going on in our culture right now with that? You're gonna become like God, sovereign over your life, and you yourself are gonna determine or know good and evil. Verse six is fascinating and very convicting for me. The woman, but also the man, I would say in this case. Both of them, in many ways, were convinced, period. That's, that's pretty intense. So, they were convinced. And then what happens after they were convinced of what happened, of, what, of that lie? What, what happened? They ate. Right after that, they're convinced I think there's such a connection between what we see in Genesis and what we see right now in our culture related to individualism. This temptation, this draw to be in control of our life, the determiners of right and wrong, uh, living independently of God and his good rule over our lives, being our own master, our own Lord. And the fruit of it is darkness is death. If you read the rest of Genesis 3 after this happens, shame enters the world. Darkness enters the world. Alienation from God enters the world right after this, right? They get kicked out of the garden. Things start to unravel. So we've looked a little bit at these pressures that we feel and the fact that as we, as we get to know the Bible more, as we're in church longer, as we have good teaching from People like Sam and Bjorn, and you know, you start to unpack the Bible more, you start to realize um, the Bible has a lot to say about these, this whole idea of individualism. It's not silent. Um, you know, some of these ideas of like, we're, we're fundamentally good. Well, the Bible would say it's a lot more complicated than that. We're made in God's image, we have unbelievable value, the potential for good, but sin has damaged us, it's corrupted us, it's made us have this incredible need for God himself to restore us and redeem us. All of us face that reality. The idea that we are in control of our lives. Now, the Bible paints a picture of a God who, who is sovereign over us, and we belong to him. The is clear, we don't belong to ourselves. You don't live to yourself or die to yourself, is what Paul teaches. Who's the determiner of right and wrong from the very beginning, in the garden up to the Ten Commandments, up to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, God is the one who's in control of right and wrong. Uh, He is the one who sets the standard and the boundaries. He is the one who's in control of ethics, morality, goodness. We look to him, not to ourselves. And in terms of self-expression, in all areas of life, whether it's money, food, entertainment, there's boundaries on our lives. We know that. In fact, we would all say we're living our healthiest when our lives have boundaries, right? when we're just doing whatever we want to do, like if you left a nine-year-old by themselves with access to the internet and access to the fridge, what would happen? I don't even need to answer that. My son is right there. He'll tell you. No, the mo- and the thing is, the more that we come to these truths and get rooted in what the Bible teaches about humanity, what we come to see is, We don't need to be out there on our own, self-autonomous little beings. We need to be in the church together. We need to be in relation. That's why this Sunday morning is so important in community groups and the different rhythms of the church. We need to be with each other and under the good authority of God and His Word in our lives. That's actually where we're going to function and flourish the most. Not by ourselves trying to figure this all out. So the question becomes... Who put that statue up in our culture? Now, uh, we've seen uh, this, this golden statue of individualism and self-rule, um, and, I, and I think, just to briefly touch on, and again, you guys are gonna have a lot more ideas of where this individualism came from, um, because in the text this morning, we see that this golden statue, where it came from, because it's important to know where things come from, because um, it can help you start to unpack where the lies are, we see in, this, in our verses today in Daniel 3 that this golden statue came really from Nebuchadnezzar's heart and his rulers who were ruling with him. Because you've got to remember, at the time, Babylon had a large, no, it wasn't just Jews who were in exile in Babylon. It was multiple nations and multiple languages. So there was this real melting pot of culture that Essentially, something like a golden statue could really assert control over. Um, Interestingly, the fact that it was gold that was used was representing, and there's ancient documents that talk about this. It's actually pretty interesting. They they chose gold because it was representative of this is going to be an eternal kingdom. So what Nebuchadnezzar was saying was this is the last kingdom. The kingdom I have set up in Babylon is forever. And that's, gold was symbolic of that. And so, essentially, they're trying to gain full control over this varying people that were in Babylon to set up this eternal kingdom. It actually sounds a lot like what the Nazis were trying to accomplish uh, in Germany. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. So we know it came from, from Nebuchadnezzar's heart, this golden statue, and this desire for... Uh, control, this desire for power, this desire to create an eternal kingdom. In our culture, you know, where, where did this idea of individualism come from to help us start to put the pieces together a little bit more? And again, I'm not going to be able to unpack all of it at all, but there, here's a few things that might be helpful for us as, as we think about how do we get to where we are. Um, you learn about this a lot in school uh, but I would say a huge influence on our culture, especially Western Europe and New England, is Greek thought, um, Greek philosophers. Uh, they highlighted a lot of the things I just described earlier that we are being told. The, in, the, the individual, um, this, this self-autonomy, this self-expression, this self-actualization, the self-rule. Uh, Greek culture also taught us a lot about things like our judicial system that we have now. Democracy itself uh, was, in, many ways, born out of the Greek system. And so that influence, you can start to see shaping parts of Western Europe and New England as time has gone on. And so I think knowing kind of what was it that these philosophers were teaching about the individual is actually really important. Fast-forward. Last couple hundred years, I think, that a little more recent, so I think it's actually helpful to know about this stuff too. I think it's really important to know about the Enlightenment. that started in Western Europe and came over to, actually, New England itself. It was largely founded in New Hampshire and in uh, Central Mass. A lot of the thought leaders of Enlightenment were located kind of right on the 93 corridor. Um, again, Get to know some of what the Enlightenment taught. It's, it's in the fabric of our culture, and it's some of these ideas, again, of get, you know, get rid of the shackles of, of, of society, of anything, uh, anything that is corporate or religious or systematic. Get rid of it all. Truth is in yourself. Really important to understand these things. And then the last thing I'd say is... Uh, Industrial Revolution had a huge impact on this idea of individualism that I think we need to become more aware of. So if you look at a graph from zero AD to now, and the uh, GDP and the, 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 the standard of living is essentially flat until about the 1800s, where it absolutely skyrockets, look it up sometime, skyrockets to where we are today. And a lot of it was the Industrial Revolution. And so what's happened, especially after the World War II in our culture, is we've had an incredible amount of uh, financial security, financial ease, uh, comfort, um, which has led to more and more and more isolated living and existence because we have the health care, the means, the, the uh, financial realities to be able to essentially take care of ourselves. And so I think it's actually distanced us as a culture in some positive ways, with all these things we've discovered, but also in some negative ways that I think make us think we can just be financially independent and on our own. What does God talk about a lot in the Old Testament when his people become rich, comfortable, and at ease? Has it usually led to good things or bad things with his people when they're rich, comfortable, and at ease? Does anyone know? Where has that usually led? To people. They trust themselves and they do what's right in their own eyes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. So to close, uh, I want us to just ask the question. So we've looked at what our golden image could potentially be compared to Nebuchadnezzar's. We've looked at maybe how we got there. And again, it's not all encompassing, but I just wanted to throw a few things out there. So we find ourselves in this cultural moment where we have to, as, as believers, lovingly uh, realize it's okay to think differently than what the culture is saying about individualism. It's okay to believe what God's word teaches about these things. It is going to make us look different, but as Christians, we're, we're called to, to follow Jesus, even when his word is hard. Um, the reality is, when Jesus would teach hard things, even when he did it with a tone of love, um, what often happened with the crowds when Jesus would would teach something that was true, and only Jesus did it in the way he can, um, but he usually wasn't harsh about it. He usually did it with care and gentleness. But what he was saying was actually countercultural. What happened to the crowds when they would listen to his words a lot of times? What would they do? They either would pick up stones or they'd leave. And what does Jesus tell us about the world? What's it going to do to his followers? How is the world going to perceive his followers? What does Jesus himself tell us? The world is going to what? The world is going to hate you. Now again, that does not give us license to go out and have this banner of, you know, you're not listening to God's word. We're going to judge you. We're going to act nasty. We're going to act rude. Uh, You don't see the apostles doing that, and you don't see Jesus doing that with the masses, with the people around him, especially with unbelievers. Um, the religious establishment, sure, he came at them hard and so did the apostles, but but the unbelievers, there was this incredible care. Um, so it's not licensed to go out and bash the school district or your neighbors or your, your company uh, and to act like a punk. That's not, that's not what this is, it's just the reality is as we share with others and live in such a way that we're showing we don't agree with all that's being shared about individuals, no matter how we do it, people are going to disagree with us. And they're going to say, you're wrong. And you're, you're mean. And you're not, you're judgmental. And you're, your thinking is darkened. And we have to expect that. But that's why we need one another. We need to be under the word of God. We need to be in community with each other to sustain this. Because at the end of this story, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is this idea that, on this truth, that what he looked into the blazing fire, what he saw was a fourth man in the fire. And many theologians think it was Christ himself, kind of a, not the incarnation, but this, this initial appearance into the world, a foreshadowing of his incarnation to come. And so for us, as we live as Christians and try to navigate these really complex issues of individualism, in our daily lives, we're not alone as we face these things. I, for one, feel alone a lot because I feel like my views of what an individual is compared to everyone else in my neighborhood are very different. I live in Durham. I'm seen as a weirdo, Um, and it's, it's tempting to feel alone, like I'm totally misunderstood. No one gets me, but I can't allow myself to wallow in that feeling of being alone. Because Jesus, one of his last promises to his people is that he is going to be with us always, wherever we go. His presence is always with us. Just like in the blazing fire, just like now. As we go out into the world, his presence is actually with us. And what Daniel's pointing to is this future kingdom where Jesus himself will reign as our king and all earthly kingdoms and pressures will be gone. And so as we, as we stand and try to be faithful to what the God's word teaches us, just like these three men were amidst different cultural pressures, it's tempting to cave. It's tempting to give up. And like the book of Daniel has this vision of a future kingdom where Jesus reigns, we need to have that same vision in our hearts. But because Jesus took on our sin and our brokenness that all of us have, he took the punishment that we deserve because of what we've done. He didn't do anything wrong, but he took on the punishment we deserved, and the wrong things we have done. He's made a way for us to actually enter an eternal kingdom where Jesus himself will be on the throne. There will be no more of this tension that we now face. And so we put our hope in the kingdom to come. Also recognizing that this kingdom we find ourselves in is, is short-lived. It's not going to last forever. King Nebuchadnezzar thought that if he put a statue up of gold, then his kingdom would last forever. Babylon is no longer in existence. And there's going to come a day when our particular culture is not here either. So why would we live for that kingdom? The one kingdom that's going to last is Jesus' kingdom. And so even when it's hard, even when it's unpopular, we stay true to what the word of God teaches us about individualism and about life itself. So to close, I just I, I pray for you guys this week that all of us would think through what does this look like to lovingly continue to believe what's true about this even in spite of all these pressures? How do I lovingly point people to God's word on these issues? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and for this story of, of uh, these three men just standing firm in the midst of a lot of cultural pressure and telling the king who had authority to kill them uh, we will not bow your majesty no matter what you say we will not bow they did it with respect they did it with care but they were firm they were courageous and they were united in community and lord we need that same thing we need courage we need gentleness we need community to take a, a stand against a lot of these things that are running contrary to what your word teaches us about, about individual, uh, individualism in our culture right now. Continue to guide us, give us wisdom, give us compassion as we try to navigate these really tricky waters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to sing again?